to the Enneagram journey. My guest today is Phil Dickey. He's young and smart and a nine on the Enneagram. Well, that's it. That's that covers it all. Young you and go. smart. Yeah. I don't feel that young anymore. I just turned 34. <laughs> yeah, uh, young. I, I uh, originally came from Missouri and grew up born and raised southwest Missouri on a farm. Was a farm boy and made my way to Texas. What, what do they always say? That I wasn't born here, but I got here as quick as I could. Uh, to actually took, took a job at Highland Park United Methodist. And that was uh, August of 07. So in August, it'll be 11 years that I've been there. Uh, I have did not ever plan on being a pastor, but I am now officially a, an ordained clergy person, the United Methodist Church, and um, have, again, been there a little over 11 years. And um, I currently work with our young adults at the church and then our online ministry as well. So that's kind of what keeps me busy as well as having a family. Yeah. So talk about your beautiful bride and those little girls. I have, uh, we will have been married 10 years in December and we have two little girls, one that is five, Nora, and one that is three, Betsy. And then we have a little boy coming in July. That's so So, exciting. uh, When in July? Uh, 13th is the due date. Yeah. But I'm convinced that we're not going to make it that far. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I want you to talk about how being a nine helps you navigate between progressive and uh, traditional because you and Joe happen to be pastors in a church Mm -hmm. that navigates between progressive and traditional thinking. Like I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about worship. I'm talking about progressive and traditional thinking and, and to further set the table to hear you talk about that for a bit. I don't know if you've heard me say in the last months that I really think right now in the world it it is a season for sixes and nines. Mm-hmm. Sixes because uh, they carry a desire for the common good better than other numbers. And nines because you see two sides yeah. to everything. Yeah, I'm, and that's what Enneagram work has really put language to this fact that I do see both sides of every story. Uh, and every issue and situation and thing that comes up and um, sometimes it can be maddening to people because I see both of those sides and uh, will not always take a, a side, which people want me to take their side mm-hmm. often. Um, but it really also helps bridge that gap then. And so, yeah, we sit at a church that um, it is pretty, it has a rich tradition, but also it can be very progressive in ways. And, uh, and so... I do that specifically through a lot of conversation. And so much of my job, I'm not a preaching pastor specifically. Uh, I'm really more of a teaching pastor. And so a lot of what I do is I get to sit down with Sunday school classes and small groups um, and really one-on-one is probably my bread and butter to sit down with people who uh, may have grown up in a tradition that says, well, but when I grew up, I was always told this and now I'm being told this and what do I do with that? And how do I make sense of that? Um, And because I also grew up from a tradition that was, well, in a very more traditional background um, than where I I am personally now, I can both speak to personal experience of that, but also help them navigate and and kind of bridge those two areas because I can see the benefits of both sides of it. Yeah. Um, And so I, I think that, Helping people find that middle ground, if I can say that, mm-hmm. uh, has has been one of the best features for me as a pastor, to be honest. One of the things I'm starting to talk about, I want to see how you respond to this language. Sure. One of the things that I'm, I picked up from Richard Rohr mm-hmm. is, um, I, I guess over the years I've never heard him talk about middle ground much, but I have always heard him talk about a third way. Mm-hmm. 
And I, um, I've been journaling about a third way lately and the Enneagram because I think there we have different things to contribute to a third way. And you and I, and I, I really have discovered this with Joe, um, but it applies to you and I. Mm-hmm. I see both sides of things in terms of emotionally. Mm. So what happens to me is I, I, as a two, see the emotional need on both sides. But I have a hard time getting that to a thinking place where I can find a third way. Mm-hmm. All I, I'm, I'm kind of trapped in fixing and relationship work as opposed to a, a bigger picture thinker. Like I'm just not a big picture thinker. Sure. And you guys tend to be. And in that big picture, what would you say the difference is in a third way, which to me sounds like a new thing, and a middle way, which seems like two people meeting in the middle? Is that the same or would you hear that differently? Well, to use some good nine language, it's a merging way, right? Like, I think that that's that's a little bit of the third way to me is that it's moving beyond the dualism, right? If it has to be left or right or traditional or progressive or, yeah. I mean, I think the first person that really turned me on a lot of this was Adam Hamilton and yeah. like some of his early work that yeah. he was doing um, and helping people to, to find a middle ground, right? Um, and so I'm, I don't think I'm familiar with what Richard has written about the third way, but but I think that helping people realize that there's not, it doesn't have to be one or the other, but more yeah. of a both and. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do know he talks a lot about that. And and that's really, I mean, that's become so much of my faith is that it's merged from a, a faith of either ends to a, a faith of, gosh, so often, more often than not, it's it's both and yeah. than either or. Two things can be true. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. think a third way would be defined as uh, n- not part your way and part my way, but a way we haven't thought of yet. Sure. And that's what I'm hopeful yeah. about in these current days. So uh, you said earlier um, that you can listen to both sides without taking sides, but people want you to take a side. Yes. What does it feel like to you? And then what do you think about it when you do take a side? I have to be careful because I I feel like because of the people that I surround myself with, there's an expectation of me to take a specific side a lot of times. And so if I'm being true to myself, um, then I, I realize that I'm not jumping in um, and just taking that side because that's what I feel like I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it takes, it takes a lot of work for me emotionally and intellectually to really do research uh, and to figure out what I really, um, am, I, am I truly informed about what's going on, first of all? Uh, and then am I really doing the, the mental processing? Because I'm not a good mental processor. Mm-hmm. I, I need someone usually to push me. Pretty so you hard. process in your gut? I'm learning to trust my gut more mm-hmm. because uh, I'm, in, I'm a part of a, a small group at our church studying the Enneagram right now. And people kept asking, what does it really mean like for, to be in the gut triad? And I thought, I'm not really sure I know what that means. But then as I started paying attention to it, I started thinking, even with like parenting, there's so many times I have a gut reaction to something and I don't jump on it. And then it all falls apart. And I thought, had Should've I just trusted that. my gut, I would have prevented all of this. So tell nines what that would feel like. What what does it feel like when you feel that in your gut? Well, I think maybe to use some familiar languages, it's knowing what's mine to do, you know? Like, uh-huh. And there are things that happen to me over and over again that I think, well, that probably could be done, but uh, like my first instinct isn't, I need to do that. Or maybe my first thought is I need to do that. My instinct probably is, I do need to do that. Because if I do it, then I will be able to prevent a tantrum from my three-year-old, Yeah, you know? 
Um, and, and really it's just there. You just know that it's there and you feel it, but there's 1800 other things that I'm doing and yeah. I'm d- always distracted by a million of them. And so I think, well, I'll get around to it eventually, but I know like my gut tells me, no, you need to do that first. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's training myself to be aware of that and to, to listen to it. So is it a bodily feeling? Is it, a uh, like, is it angst? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's so much angst as it is, um, like it's mental. It's mental for me. I, I, I have the thought and I know I need to do it. But it starts in your gut. It's, it, Does it start in your head and you feel it in your gut? Or does it start in your gut and you feel it in your head? That's a good question. I, I, maybe, maybe I got more work to do <laughs> to, yeah. to figure out what the difference is. Yeah. Because um, I couldn't I couldn't put words to it in my small group. Um, but then when I started paying attention to it, I just felt it. And and maybe I'm not sure how to separate the difference all the time between my thinking and my feeling or my gut. Yeah. You know? I think you feel it first. I think you feel it, though, in your gut. I don't maybe. think it's an emotion. No, it's definitely not an emotion. No, it's bodily then mm-hmm. somehow. And then you think, what is that? Does that ring true? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what does conflict have to do with all that and avoiding conflict? Uh, I'm good at that, avoiding conflict. It's, it's, uh, it's back to me being confident in where I stand on something before I can engage in that conflict. So it's taken me a long time to find kind of this middle way or third way or whatever it is um, on specific issues to be able to engage in those conflicts so that I can feel like I'm not going to be surprised necessarily by things. Um, and I can, I can be a non-anxious presence maybe in situations where I can facilitate conversations to bring about conflict. Um, I, I really have to do work before I go into conflict situation. Like I have to sit down and I have to write down questions before I get there. Because if I go into it without doing something like that, then I get overtaken by emotion. If I get caught off guard on something and you put me in a conflict, uh, like conflict and put me up against the wall, it doesn't usually end up well. And I don't represent myself well. And I don't, do you get angry? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. And, and I don't like that. I like to be able to control my anger. Yeah. So, you know, Joe's one of the most laid back people yep. on the planet. And when he and I first started working together, he was 37. Mm-hmm. And he was working on anger. Okay. And I think people who hear about nines don't think that nines would spend part of their life, which you're doing right now, working on anger. Yeah. But you're in the anger triad. Right. So it's it's foolish not to expect that. And one of the things I've heard nines say, Joe first and then other nines, is that they kind of got uh, serious about working on their anger when their anger scared them. <laughs> good, good story. Uh, my three-year-old is potentially more stubborn than me. Potentially. Uh, no, she usually is. She uh, is strong-willed. Somebody described her as spirited. She's very spirited. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and That's so, what a grandparent says about their... Right, you know. exactly. Like, oh, that child's so spirited. You're going to really appreciate that yeah. in the future. I'm like, well, I don't right now. Uh, her and I get into it pretty regularly. And there was one night where I thought... Like, it, it, ter- it did. It terrified me. And I... <laughs> I had just gotten an email from Richard Bork about his book, Anger, that had just come out recently. And I just purchased it right there on the spot because I was terrified. I thought, oh my gosh, things running through my head right now should never be thought about like for your own child. Like that's a scary thought to have, you know? Like I I had to just walk away from her. Like I was in in it so deep with her that I had to turn around and walk away. And luckily her mom walked in and just like managed that. But but I had to walk away because I thought this is not a good space for me to be in. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think it's hard for nines to say, yeah, 
anger is a big part of the deal. Yeah. It's not always passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. It could be other. Yeah. And so do you think that the desire to avoid conflict causes you to channel anger into a way that it's passive aggressive? Yes. Always. I mean, so often, not always, so often. I think when, when I have an eruption of anger, mm-hmm. often people realize that that's often my truest self, actually. Mm, interesting. I, I think part of it, too, is because you're doing repressed. So I think yeah. an, an angry action involves doing. Mm-hmm. So I think you just let it seethe a little bit. And then you have a, a, a way of letting people know that that's not okay or yeah. you're not good with that or you're not going to go along with that. Or What number is your wife? She's pretty sure she's a six. Uh, we went back and I know you can't tell another person the number, but she had a hard time figuring out. And I really thought she was a five for the longest time. Basically, because when I heard you teach about the, you know, like energy's done. Yeah, it's over. Uh-huh. Um, so I thought that for the longest time, but after she's done some work on it, she, she's pretty sure she's a six with a strong five wing. Yeah. Yeah. Counterphobic or phobic? I think she's probably phobic. So y- y'all are on the triangle uh-huh. then, yeah, mm-hmm. which is just crazy in a marriage sometimes mm-hmm. to be moving back and forth between three, six, and nine and right. and nowhere else. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, do you think that's helpful or problematic, or how is it each? I think it, it can be helpful because we do because we do share space. So when we recognize that we're sharing space, whether it may not be at the same time, but we, we can at least relate to the space that's being encountered. And so it can be helpful to us in that scenario. Yeah. But also sometimes, you know, when, when she's channeling her inner nine and being stubborn as well, those things don't always go well. Or if she's being passive aggressive and avoiding, uh, you know, or I, like there can be spaces where we don't always see each other eye to eye, yeah. you know, even yeah. though we're in the same space. So, so it can be helpful, but it can, I think a lot of times it's also really difficult. I have a quick question. Uh-huh. When she has similar interactions with your three-year-old daughter, yeah. when she's being spirited, how does she respond? Where yeah. you you know you have that kind of start build up and then it hits yeah. the fan. Right. What does it look like for her? I think we go back and forth. So she gets there sometimes too, and I think luckily is that we usually don't get there at the same time. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it is not that we intentionally play good cop bad cop, but sometimes when we get pushed so far and we get to that anger point, then the other one can, we can walk out and the other person can intervene and, and have a calm presence and be okay. And, um, be able to, we can usually tag team it pretty well, but, but she does, she gets to that point too. Um, so you're both married to wives who share a line with you on the Enneagram. Really? Yeah. I'm seven and Whitney's a one. Okay. And I've, kind of wondered about that and parenting because no. it's a that's a tricky thing when one of you becomes the other one in stress yeah right and it's a switch it's does it feel like a switch like mid mid something does it feel like oh i'm moving to six and jess is moving to nine or does it feel like i'm moving to one and for me because i keep i keep a lot in I don't know quite when the switch is, but mm-hmm. she knows when in, when it happens, mm-hmm. or when I am in one space mm-hmm. when I'm I'll be doing things and uh, and she'll just say she'll say it out loud she'll joke about it she likes it <laughs> but yeah uh, 
Sure. And then sometimes, depending on how deep into that one space, you know, when the whole, I'm vacuuming the whole house at 10 o'clock. Yeah. And she's like, what, you want to talk about something? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. The inverse of that, when she goes to seven, it's great just because she, you know, she's got a stressful job. She's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so when she's laid back and just enjoying what's happening and just kind of has a smile on her face and is, it turns out when I met her, she was funny, but she's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And she's mostly hilarious when she's in that seven space. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's and the reason why I asked is because we have a workshop coming up in August that's uh, around part of it's going to be around parenting and mm-hmm. enneagram. And I just think it's so great when I personally would not want to raise a child with my with a spouse with my same enneagram number because then in that situation when the three year old, you know, Joe, my uh, middle daughter. She's very spirited mm-hmm. and strong-willed. Mm-hmm. And my sisters would give me a hard time when I was raising her when she was younger and three and two years old because I real calmly just met her with it. And I was like, this is not how it's going to go and so on. And if it was two nines and two, there's no tag in. It's just the same yeah. things mm-hmm. coming in. So that's what it must be so nice then to for the tag in to be a six to come in with that energy. That's why I asked. So here's what I think is so great about the conversation mm-hmm. at the moment. And that is that I, um, I'm not sure without the Enneagram that we have a way to really talk about struggling with parenting. Mm-hmm. So we all just act like it's so great all the time and we're so lucky. And, and, it, and I, I think the Enneagram gives us permission to say, you know, th- this is a weak part of my number in terms of parenting. Yeah. And I, I need somebody who's not just like me or this is a strength I have in parenting and I'm I'm here for other people to lean on me a little bit. I wonder as we continue to talk about Enneagram and parenting and that's a conversation that's really just starting because I've avoided. But I, I wonder if we're going to find out that um, there is a, a permission that we all need in order to look at ourselves as parents and just to say, I'm, I'm just really weak right here. Yeah. Well, that's what, and I want to hear what you have to say about this sure. because when it seems to me in a marriage, it's become, or it is okay to say, you're really good with handling the bills and handling all that. That's not my strength. And that's okay. And you're great at uh, getting this done around the house. And so we have that balance but people don't give themselves the same permission. Mm-hmm. They feel like they have to be, even though there's two of you, that you have to be a whole parent and you have to be able to do every aspect of it right when you don't and, and you can't. Well, and there was a myth when you all were young well, that parents were supposed to agree on everything, stand in the same space. And that's just not possible. Uh, yeah. And I don't think it's advantageous. So like with our kids, they always knew that I was going to say no to the big things and yes to the little things, mm-hmm. and that Joe was going to say no to the little things and yes to the big things. Mm-hmm. And there's that space then where they work you because <laughs> right. they know sure. where to get what. But I I, I think we we got to be more honest all across the board about how challenging parenting is yeah. and about how challenging marriage is yeah. and this and about how challenging ministry is since you happen to be in ministry. Exactly. Instead of this, it's all great business. Yeah. That's just here's here's a good example too. So my wife is a trained school psychologist, and she works primarily with preschool students, which is the age of our children. And so, 
I tend to take the back seat or just merge whatever she says is best because she's trained in it. This is what she's spent her education on and she's been a practicing psychologist for 10 years. And so I always think, well, that's the right answer because she's trained in this. Even though sometimes my gut says, I don't know if that's the best solution right now. But typically I just think, well, I'm not the specialist here. So how does that play out? Uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'm not all my gut's not always right. You know, <laughs> and, and she, she does have good responses and she more often than times not, she probably is right, you know, but, um, but I'm learning to at least vocalize whenever those things come up or have the permission to say, you, why don't you just walk away right now? You know, like <laughs> I know you have these strategies and usually they work with your students, but it's not working right now. And that's okay. Like, let me just step in for a minute, you know, just, instead of just her continuing to get more and more frustrated. I'm going through the exact same thing in our house right now. I feel like this is going great for me. <laughs> Kindred spirits. Yes. Yeah. I, in that uh, we have, we have a blended family mm-hmm. and she and my wife is an eating disorder specialist. Oh yeah. You know, so she has whatever the licenses are and yep. therapy and so on. And that she has these practices and that she'll, that we use and so on. And there are times when I'm like, that is great. And at this moment, no more practices. Yep. Now it's do this differently. Yep. So and I, you're both right. Both of you are right. All four of you are right sometimes, right? Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky deal. Oh. It's tricky. Very tricky. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. Perfect. What in the culture would you change right now based on your Enneagram number that you think would be good for everybody? I mean, not to take us back to where we began, but uh, I think if, if people would start sitting down and looking at a third way and having conversations with one another, uh, I mean, it's not hard to, to realize that we're in a pretty divisive situation currently. Right. Um, and in all actuality, we're not all that different. We, we may think different, mm-hmm. um, but we're not all that different when it comes down to it. And, and I think if we would just sit down and have shared conversations, that's been some of my the most fruitful work I've been a part of in the last year, um, both in terms of race as well as um, human sexuality. It's just uh, shared conversations with people that um, really thought they had their heels dug in on something um, or might have been totally blind to something. And then just by a simple conversation with somebody that thought completely different than them, looked different than them, um, opened their eyes to just a whole new reality. It's really interesting because, um, you know, when I'm teaching stances, mm-hmm. ones, twos, and sixes are thinking repressed. Mm-hmm. And very often what that means is that they haven't reevaluated any of the belief system that they grew up with. Hmm. They haven't thought it through on a different level. They haven't... Um, tried to come up with a new way of thinking about things, they just bring it with them. It's like baggage that just moves with them from place to place. And so I ha- I really challenge ones, twos, and sixes to divide into thirds a way of looking at the belief system you grew up in, the belief system that you are a part of right now, and what you believe. And that's a, that's a long process to figure yeah. that out. And I'm... Um, uh, convinced that lazy thinking or repressed thinking is a cause of a great deal of disconnect for the dependent span stance that doesn't do well with disconnect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My answer is very, your answer seemed very nine. <laughs> and mine's very seven that 
for people to stop taking things so seriously and more importantly, so personally. Everyone gets so offended by everything. I'm not speaking from experience. Like I'm not going around offending people and I'm very passive, <laughs> you know, whatever, because I don't take it personally. I don't take a lot of things personally. Maybe I should at some times and, you know, it works out for me. I probably miss a lot of stuff, but it just seems with social media and how our society communicates now that you're communicating with a lot more people that aren't even communicating with you. That's very interesting, too, because this is a new thought for me based on where we find ourselves. And that is that ones, twos, and sixes take things personally. And I think that's because they're dependent on uh, getting their sense of themselves from other people. And if I could, <laughs> if I can find a space walking away from this conversation to deal with that one thing, because I've never thought about ones, twos, and sixes being the people on the Enneagram who take things personally. I just know I'm surrounded by people in my family who don't. <laughs> and I take, I do take things personally, but it's because I get my sense of who I am from other people. We don't have a nine in our family uh, at our house, but my dad's a nine. And I know that one of the things that he as a nine, who was a former Catholic priest, and a Methodist minister never pushed his beliefs on us. And I think because of his personality, kind of encouraged to find the third way or whatever our own way is instead of one way. You know, I think that's a real gift, for instance, that I don't have as a parent. Yeah. I know that I push on my kids. Hey, I think I think this is the way to do it. Or find your own way. Unless your way is this way <laughs> and <laughs> and stuff like that. Not about religion, things like that, but just daily things. And I think that's a real gift that, that nines have that other numbers miss as, as parents. Yeah. Uh, well, I've often said I think nines are the least controlling of all the numbers. And I for sure think that's true. I, I'm not sure why. Do you think it's true? And, is, and do you know why? Well, there's, there's a fine line between controlling and stuttering. So yeah. I think that... Yeah, I don't feel the need to control much. So you know the story I tell about how um, my parents used to say when I wanted to do something, they said no. And I said, everybody's going. And their horrible line was, well, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? And then when I used that teaching, I say that I, I, I would go ahead and go. Joe would not go as a nine, but he wouldn't try to keep anybody else from jumping. He would just go home. Right. Is that true for you? I think mine varies. I think mine varies based on my level of involvement and in, in the relationships I have with those people who are doing it. So I don't talk about wings very much because I, I don't put a lot of stock in sure. wings in most circumstances. I think there are places where they're very important. And one of the places that's really important is nine with an eight wing. Mm. So are you a nine with an eight wing, nine with a one wing, or do you have both? My wife always says I'm a nine with a nine wing. That I'm just like just nine, a nine. Nine through and through. I think my eight shows up. I don't think I have much of a one wing. I do reorganize the dishwasher every once in a while, but that's just because of an efficiency thing a little bit more yeah. than anything. But uh but if I lean anyway, it's an eight side. And especially when it comes to things of faith and justice yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and they, they shine through pretty hard sometimes. And so are those areas justice and faith, which are, first of all, 
eights, nines, and ones are all very concerned about justice, Mm -hmm. period. So when you add a wing on either side of nines, you get an increased concern about justice. Justice on justice? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, What gifts do you think you have for that? And what detriment is, or what weakness would you say being a nine is in relationship to justice issues? Yeah, I think... I think again, I can, I can tend to see both sides of it, but for the for the most part, when it comes to issues of justice, uh, there's less seeing both sides. There's more of a well, no, this is just wrong, you know. And there's yeah. there's times where uh, I can't even explain why I think something is wrong. I may not have the language to explain what's what it is, but I feel it for sure. And I I can just tell you something's not right here, and that's frustrating for people sometimes because they need language for it. Mm-hmm. But I can just tell you. That's that's not right. And again, that's where I have to do a lot of work on myself to sit down and say, what are really what's really going on here before I can have a conversation? Because otherwise, I'll get, I'll get emotional, and um, and then it's not productive for anybody. So you know, one of the things that's happening during this podcast that you may not be aware of is you're teaching, teaching, teaching about your gut mm-hmm. and about reading the world from your gut. Mm-hmm. And I've not had that experience on the podcast yet of somebody doing that. But that whole thing of something's just not right here. Mm-hmm. This just didn't good. That's all that eight, nine, one reading things from your gut space. So what does it cost you to take a stand on a justice issue? And what do you get from it? Well, usually it costs me engaging in conflict, which the easier part for me is I can see it and I can say things to those that I'm comfortable with and often those who side with me, but to say something on people on the other side of the spectrum, that's what I'm not as good at. So I can often teach people, this is what we should be doing, but I don't often engage in it myself. And I have to really push myself to have those conversations and to actually do it. There's something right now that I'm having a really hard time with and I have a friend who keeps pushing me and saying, you need to just email that person and go sit down with them and talk to them. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm going to. I'm going to. And I keep telling more people about it now because I keep thinking, if I tell enough people, they'll keep me accountable enough that I'll have to finally send that email and go sit down and have that conversation. But I don't want to do it because that sounds terrible to me <laughs> to engage in that conflict because I know it's going to be conflictual. But I also know that I think that this is one of the ones I can finally look at it and say, this is my work to do. Yeah. Do you think about the alternative? I've been talking recently with my family about how I'll think things through. So if I... I, need, I know I need to send the email and I don't want to send the email because I don't want to fight with them. Then I'll say to myself, so what is going to happen? Or is your idea, I'll eventually send the email? It's a little bit of both. Sometimes I just don't think about it. I'm an expert compartmentalizer. And so I can just put it aside until I can't anymore. That is the most fascinating thing about nines. That you can just not think about something if you don't want oh, to. I think it drives most other numbers bonkers. Me, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and it's, it almost seems unfair. It should seem unfair because uh-huh. it's terrible. Yeah. It's terribly unjust to the rest of the, us. The problem is it makes other people think that then we don't feel or engage in pain or have it. Like, mm-hmm. it's still there. We just, I think we just internalize it. Or maybe I should say I. I internalize it. And that's when the anger then comes out later, you know. And Sideways. I almost scare myself. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas a lot of other numbers, it just comes out. They, you know, like, I work for a boss who's an eight, and she doesn't know how to internalize. Yeah. Period. You know. Yeah. What do you regret when you pass by a justice issue and don't follow your gut? 
What are you going to regret if you don't send the email? The, the same issue is going to perpetuate over and over again. And it's, it's not that I think I have the potential to change Biggs leap and bound always, but there, there are times that I can look back and say, God, why didn't I speak up there? Or, and, I, and I can look at the situation now and think, no, actually no one's going to say anything in the same way that I will if I don't send this email. Yeah. And, and I, I fight with the whole idea of does my presence really matter here? Because in times in the past where I have brought it up and nothing changed from it, oh, that's to just talk about cutting your legs off underneath you. Because it took so much from me to get to the point to finally address it. And then when nothing changes about it, it just seems like, see, could have just avoided that conflict all along. But then when things do change, then it finally feels like, okay. Well, and you know, I th- this is very uh, 67-year-old to 34-year-old, yeah. so forgive me. But there's also the, it may have made a difference and you're just not around to see it. Sure. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things we do that we don't get to see the benefit of. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit, or I want to hear you talk a little bit, about uh, expectations. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I, I want to back up and say that I don't, know yet that I think the two messages from childhood that Rizzo and Hudson have given us to work with have a bigger effect on any number than the two that come with your number. So to grow up believing that it's not okay to assert yourself and that your presence doesn't matter, then to have this sense of dislike for conflict and you put those three things together and then uh, you put the reality that you're at the top of the Enneagram which is one of the reasons that you really can look down both sides from there and often know more about each number than you know about yourself (laughs) then that's kind of a, a, a package that could potentially have so many uh, drawbacks, you you know, if you understand the universe like we do, that it also has that many positives too, and that many payoffs too. So, how do you overcome that routine of it's not okay for me to assert myself? And then, if you assert yourself and nothing happens, then you say your presence doesn't matter, and I wasted the energy of asserting myself. So can you connect that to expectations? When you say expectations, do you think, what, can you be more specific? I you? certainly can. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do some work with Jonah and four mantras. Show up, pay attention, tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Don't get attached to the results. Mm-hmm. And I think the honest answer to what is mine to do can never be evaluated by the results of doing what was mine to do. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. Oh, it's, and this is kind of the, the worst part of me and the best part of me. Cause there's some points that I get to the, this, this point of, uh, I just can't care anymore. And so I get to the point of, I can't care anymore. And so, uh, I'm just going to do it because whatever happens, whatever happens, I don't care anymore because I can't, I can no longer deal with the internal mm-hmm. conflict that it's bringing about. Mm-hmm. Um, or then there can be the positive aspect of, okay, I'm actually going to do this because I care that much about it. Yeah. Obviously, I would rather stick with the latter than the former because sure. the former is um, almost a depressive kind of state where, mm-hmm. you know, it's like 
some people just want to watch the world burn. I don't get to that at that point usually, yeah. but but it's like if it is fine because I can't I can't deal with it anymore. Sounds like giving up though, as opposed to as so, opposed to being in, engaging. Yes, yes, like it's mm-hmm. the it, I can't care anymore. Yeah. When I say that, it means I'm not going to act. Yeah. And when you say it, it means that you are. It means that whatever at this point, if it, what are they going to do? You know, like yeah. what's the worst thing that could happen at this yeah. point? Yeah. That's I could probably use more explicit, explicit language, ex- yeah. expletives yeah, yeah. in my expressing you, you that. Could. I haven't gotten to use the beep yet. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I actually was thinking when I was coming over, I thought, I got to be careful. I don't know if they have a clean rating on this one. I got to be careful. Sometimes I have to be careful with our podcast, too, that we don't get yeah. too crazy. But. Um, what do you wish you had known? This is three questions. Okay. What do you wish you had known as a freshman in high school? Oh, God. What do you wish you had known as a freshman in college and what do you wish you had known in January hmm. I love freshman year of high school uh, so I, I wish I would have known that it's not always going to be this good because it wasn't always that good sophomore year proved that interesting um, freshman year of college I wish I would have known it was, it was okay. I beat myself up a lot about not knowing what I was going to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I thought I needed to prove myself uh, to be an intellect. And so I thought about going down the route of being an engineer until I got a C in calculus and thought, that's not at all what I actually want to be. I think that's what I thought was maybe expected of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quickly, by the end of my or second half of my freshman year, figured out what I want to do and started studying religion and yeah. haven't gone back since. Um, but if I would have given myself some more grace that first semester, maybe, and recognize that a scene calculus, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Um, Sounds really good to me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> See, does okay. Yeah. And then January. Uh, I think, not that I want us to live in a state of depression, like I was saying a minute ago, of this, like, whatever, I'm just going to do it anyway. I think uh, had I had more confidence in myself in January and just been able to um, to speak out and be more maybe aggressive if I can use that word, mm-hmm. I would have, I would have uh, engaged in a lot of conversations in January that I haven't still had a conversation with yet. And uh, I think I would have been just fine. That's one of the things I really like that you say about the repressed doing stance mm-hmm. is that doing builds confidence yep. and so many other things that you just can't get without doing. Yep. So yeah. if I could go back and talk to myself from January, I would tell myself to just go have those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask you one more question, mm-hmm. and then you can um, ask me a question. So the question I want to ask you is, um, can you tell people about your piece? <laughs> Sometimes I think it's kind of like a mystical experience. There's no actual words for it. It's yeah. just there. Uh I would tell people that uh, my peace is 50-50. And sometimes I really am just that much at peace. And sometimes I've just lost myself in being complacent. Oh, it's really good. And so it's uh, really unfair for people that I'm in relationships with because they don't know which one I'm in. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm really bad about when you ask me the first time, I'm not going to tell you what's really going on. It takes second or sometimes third or fourth. Mm-hmm. Time to really push into me and to really mine into what's actually going on. 
And is that because you don't know the first time the question yeah. goes by? I so think that it require my my processing requires a verbal processor to help me yeah. put words to what's actually going on inside of me. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Thank you very much for uh-huh. sharing this time and sharing your nineness and. Thank you for the work that you've done because it's it's helped again put language to so much of my personal experience, but also relationships for me too. Makes me hopeful to hang out with a couple of young men with wives and children who are working hard on getting it right. Well, have a lot of respect for both of you. Thanks again. You're very welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining me again today. I'd love to see you in person. I'll be in Boise, Idaho, July 19th to the 21st, teaching the Thinking, Feeling, Doing Church with Joe. August 2nd to 5th, we have Boot Camp 2 here in Dallas. This year, we're going to talk about relationships, parenting, and the Enneagram in Crisis. And August 24th and 25th, I'll be in Kansas City teaching Know Your Number. All of the information you need can be found at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. I hope to see you there. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.